Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week, historical romances have the sense and sensibility to not catch tulip fever. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. When we'll have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and I've got a fever, and the only cure is more tulips. Uh, but, unfortunately, I kind of lied in that description here for this week, in that my usual co-host, Adam Thomas, is unfortunately not here this evening for this particular episode. Uh, he had a last-minute family emergency, which meant he unfortunately could not come on. We hope the best for Adam. We hope everything's good and that he can come back on next week. But I do have someone else here with me uh, who was designed to be our guest this whole time and will now be my co-pilot for the episode, not to put any more pressure on him. Um, he is from another Talk Film Society podcast, uh, It Pod to Be You, that covers romance films uh, of varying different stripes. It is Mr. Manish Mother. Manish, welcome to the show. Hi, how, how are you? Thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's a pleasure. I'm, I've listened to the show. I'm a big fan. Love what you do over there. And um, I'm glad especially that you actually asked me to come onto the show, because apparently you've listened to a couple of the episodes since we joined Talk Film Society. I really enjoy the show, and both have such good uh, chemistry. I, it's like... A lot of fun listening to it. So I was, um, I was like, let me just invite myself on here just to uh, plant my flag. Um, so thanks so much for agreeing, and I'm glad you like uh, Ipatri. You, thanks for listening. We would love to have more guests like yourself that want to be on. We force people on. <laughs> we just like prod, like please, please come on. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> for the love of God. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, we have you on here obviously because uh, we're doing historical romances in honor of this is coming out um, in time for valentine's day uh for all you lovers out there and uh we've done you know like romantic comedies and romantic dramas stuff like that previously on the show uh but historical romance ones definitely sort of caught our eyes like a different subgenre and what do you think separates that particular subgenre from uh your other experiences with other various stripes of romance film given you're the expert on this oh well i mean i appreciate that um what i love about historical romance is you can do it in like one of two ways. One is like make it like kind of very like lavish and expensive looking and, you know, have a lot of big stars or you can kind of do like a stripped down story. And what I find really fascinating about historical romance is how much the filmmakers try to make some kind of connections between the past and the, and the present. You know, we try to find like some of them really try to make them feel more relevant. And also I think that historical romance can just be, it can be kind of fun to get swept away in it. You know, we don't get a lot of, you know, romantic epics anymore. Um, and the, and so it's fun to see films that kind of take you away to a different time. And you get to see a lot of really great character actors kind of playing 
roles and having some fun with costumes and, and makeup and hair. And it's like, I like romance movies. I think when they're done really well, they can be some really exciting, you know, authentic, interesting filmmaking. Um, and when, when done poorly, as we'll see, it can be kind of frustrating and annoying. Uh, romance is a genre. I mean, I don't, you know, I would love to get your take on this, but I feel like romance can kind of get maligned a lot. You know, my review of Tulip Fever, um, not to spoil it, I've, on Letterboxd, my review was, um, you know, movies like this kind of make other movies like this look bad. And because I think people kind of lump all the good and bad ones together as like, oh, it's just kind of easy to like do whatever. But I, I feel like romance as a genre is a really vital piece of filmmaking. It's, you know, it's been a part of storytelling since forever. So <laughs> historical romance, it just gives you an opportunity to kind of get more epic, get more grand and, and really show off a lot of parts of filmmaking that I think people don't really associate with romance, you know, cinematography and costume design and editing and stuff like that. I get what you're saying because, you know, on my end being just like a cisgender straight white dude, I was always sort of programmed from an early yeah. age to be like, oh, that's not for me. That's girly stuff. Exactly. I don't like any of that. Like I remember when I was younger, the big du jour was Titanic. That was, like, such a big, massive movie, and it was so ubiquitous that I kind of hated that movie for a while, just out of, like, oh, it was just everywhere. And then I've gone back to that movie since another, like, especially the historical romance. It's just like, wow, these are, like, big and spectacle in a way that, you know, now we get that in the form of, you know, Marvel movies where the most sex is just, like, a superhero going up to a lady and be like, do you like me? Check X or no. Yeah, you know, yeah. And there's not that much like actual romantic chemistry between people as opposed to like the older I get, the more I kind of love the idea of like two people just swooning over each other, especially in a disparate place from long ago. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. It's really exciting to see that kind of thing. And yeah, you, you know, as you mentioned, like at its best, it can be something that really captures you and just sweeps you into that period. And at its worst, it can be kind of boring, though I would argue at least with um, Tulip Fever is never boring because it's just it's like oh we're doing this now. yeah yeah okay we'll, we'll get into that in a second with um our topic uh obviously gives us the opportunity to cover a good and a bad film uh for the evening uh our choices from the end of our last episode where we did the random picking uh were between uh, adam's good pick which is uh, sense and sensibility of the 1995 adaptation of the jane austen novel and then my bad pick was uh, one that I chose, but the patrons, patreon.com slash pod, ended up voting on that, and thus getting us uh, Tulip Fever, which will be the first film we're covering here. And uh, let's just go ahead and jump into it now with uh, Tulip Fever. In 1634, Amsterdam was captivated by a flower. Rich and poor gambled on the tulip market. <laughs> Sophia was a beautiful orphan chosen by one of the richest men in the city. Love, honor, and obey. I've decided to engage the services of a painter. Don't move. Put your brush to capturing my wife. She is a rare beauty. There's nothing without risk. I love you. Tell your husband what you've been up to. What have I done? I bought Sophia. I must find her. You two really think you'll carry this off? So Tulip Fever came out September 1st, 2017, and though it was directed by Mr. Uh, Justin Chadwick, 
the real sort of auteur here is someone who we should just get this out of the way about the reason why this film exists um, is it was the last film widely released by the Weinstein company. And uh, it was literally about a month before all the stuff broke about Harvey Weinstein. And yeah. his bread and butter was really a lot of these historical romance movies that got him like, you know, you did all of his like campaigning for Oscars that got like the English patients or Shakespeare in Love, rather infamously, or the King's Speech, to win the Best Picture Oscars. And he was doing that for a while, especially like in the 90s through the 2000s. Even before all the sexual assault stuff came out, uh, there he kind of had been dwindling in the last few years that he was actually a film distributor. And, uh, you know, I think I can speak for Adam uh, when I say, and I really hope <laughs> do you agree with me, sir, uh, fuck this guy. Oh, absolutely. But it's, it is such a bummer, especially I'm curious because of like those big movies are like really big in that kind of genre of like the historical romance, like being his bread and butter. Does that really like make you think back on some of those movies with regret about them being as big as they were? Can you still watch some of those? Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel comfortable kind of dismissing every Miramax movie ever made just because there's so many ones that are just incredible films. Like, you know, the hours. And I mean, he did a lot of work with Tarantino. So, I mean, I don't mm -hmm. think anyone's going to be burning their Pulp Fiction, you know, Blu-rays anytime soon. So it, it's hard, but at the same time, you know, he was just one person and he, I mean, of course he had his own whole web of accomplices, I'm sure, but, you know, thousands of people worked on these movies. Um, a lot of actors that I really admire and respect worked on them as well. I think they're important parts of American filmmaking and, and I don't want to, um, I don't know. I just, I don't feel comfortable being like, you know, no to boycott Miramax forever, um, especially movies that were made, you know, before any of this came out. This was like the nail in the coffin, as you mentioned. I'll, there are so many movies that I really admire from in his catalog. And, you know, I do wince when I see the Miramax logo, you know, in front of a movie. But then the movie starts and it's, you know, most of them are quite brilliant. So I, I guess the kind of thing I'm, I'm thinking is like, well, you know, everyone involved in these movies at some point probably has a story where he victimized them, whether you know, physically or emotionally or verbally. So all these movies were kind of made in the face of his, you know, tyranny and dictatorship and awful behavior. So, you know, I'm not going to be like, oh, you know, Meryl Streep is complicit because she was in the out. Like, I don't know. That just seems a little extreme for me. Right. Especially when certain people have spoken out, like Cara Delevingne. Yeah, exactly. Out, like, right. Was, yeah. Like, very, made very uncomfortable by him with like his own like sexual harassment, which is a shame. I, I think it's, it's a whole thing where like that's so much more of an issue when it's someone who's more creatively involved. You know, when yeah, it's, it's yeah. somebody who, like, you can definitely be more irksome as opposed to Weinstein put up the money. And more importantly, if anything, like, really just damaged the films, even regardless of, like, the other stuff. He was, all, like, infamous for, like, cutting up movies like this movie, obviously. Yeah, yeah. It was shot in 2014, and it was, like, went through several screenings and re-edits and stuff like that. And um, you can kind of tell, because every scene feels like it's edited within an inch of its life. Yeah, because it's just like a, a like any scene. Just like, well, this is the barest minimum setup, and then cut to the next thing. Cut to the next thing. This is like an hour forty five minutes, and it feels even shorter than that. It feels very much like a movie that is not given any room to have any kind of like depth to its characters or story. It's just like, nope, we gotta keep moving. Gotta keep moving. Keep it up. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, my question to you is like, do you think there's a good movie in here somewhere or a different adaptation of this novel? Could like could that have worked? Or because I kind of feel like the story is almost unfilmable. I mean, I haven't read the book, so what do I know? But I, I mean, any bad book can be made into a good movie. I definitely think that. But I just wonder, like, is this movie even salvageable on any level? Or we just kind of like, it's just just like a weird story that just doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't know. I can't, I can't figure that out for myself. Well, it's interesting because there was almost a version of this in 2004 uh, okay. that was like going to be produced by Steven Spielberg and would have starred instead of the actors we get in the main parts, Jude Law, Kira Knightley. I know, shocker, Kira Knightley in a historical romance movie. <laughs> You've not seen any of those. Um, and then Jim Broadbent. Yeah. And directed by John Madden, which I think would have been maybe not uh, a very memorable movie, but at least would have been something that resembles more of a cohesive movie <laughs> sure, than sure. this one. Because my biggest problem with this movie is just that it, it falls into a, one area of bad movies that I find fascinating of just like a studio train wreck of just like, oh, hey, we're going to have like five different movies in one. And it just flows like like a train that hits a wall but then it has to keep going and move it away from the wall <laughs> and just yeah. keeps hitting more and more walls the whole time. Because, like, if you don't know, the basic story of this movie is it takes place in, like, 17th century Amsterdam. The main character is played by Alicia Vikander, who ends up getting married to this duke of some sort, played by Christoph Waltz. And he's like, oh, you know what? I'm going to get our portrait done by this artist who's played by Dane DeHaan. And as uh, the portrait is getting done, Dane DeHaan grows to have an affection for Alicia Vikander and vice versa. And they have an affair. Uh, while at the same time, there's a bunch of other stuff with the housekeeper, played by Holiday Granger, who ends up getting pregnant by a fishmonger guy who also is in the middle of the Wall Street of Tulips, which was a real thing, apparently. Yeah. That people went day trading. <laughs> for fucking tulips at this time and there's a whole thing where you know holiday granger gets pregnant and lish vigander needs to produce a child for christoph waltz so she pretends to be pregnant like i said 20 different fucking storylines happen in this movie and none of them work together at all it's kind of insane you can feel the editing of the movie you can also feel that it was probably like given so many notes all the time and you know, not that like um justin chadwick is some like brilliant auteur who needs a director's cut it, this movie just feels so like by the numbers. They're trying to make almost like a parody of a literary adaptation of a famous novel, you know, or at least a popular novel. It, it does kind of feel like historical romance movie, like a scary movie style parody. Exactly. Yeah. It's just like let's we have to parody like five different movies. So we'll yeah. go from one one of the versions movies to the next, and it's weird because like it's it was written by Deborah Magach who wrote the the novel this was based on, but also Tom Stoppard, yeah. who was like a famous like playwright and screenwriter who had done like Shakespeare and Love and all these other things, and you can see aspects of that like especially all of the farcical stuff feels very Tom Stoppard, uh, but then it's it's like you said I totally agree that it it goes from being the most traditional version of like one of these historical romances to more of like the farcical thing. to more of these other things in, in a way that feels kind of like you're just trying to cover more ground. It, it feels like it's the last act of a desperate man for like a Weinstein. who was just like, Oh, I need to have some kind of relevance again. I'm going to do another one of these historical romance movies. That's like, Oh, should we settle on one particular type? It's just like, no, do them all. Yeah. I need, yeah. This is my Hail Mary pass. And it's like, Oh no, this isn't going to work at all on, on any level. Right. And like the most interesting part of this movie is the Wall Street of Tulips part, because like that's unique. That's kind of like a very specific 
you know, period of history where tulips were kind of all the rage and uh, they're in what, Denmark? Right, yeah, they're in like Amsterdam. Is Amsterdam, yeah. yeah. Whereas like, you know, we've seen a million movies where there's like a pretty wife who's kind of, who's stuck with an old husband and she's getting seduced by some young hot guy. Like that's, that's like, you know, we've seen the movie a million times and they don't do anything interesting with it. it you know, Christoph Waltz is playing like a character, like one of those husbands from those movies. Dane DeHaan is like trying to be like Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic, but like not. And Alicia Vikander, I mean, I think she's a very talented actress, but I think she's awful in this movie. Like, I just, she's so lost. She's like, doesn't, she has no idea how to even play these scenes. Even for someone who's like so talented and like played a robot extremely well, like a year Well, that's, it's what's interesting also is this would have been shot around the time of an Ex Machina coming out. Yeah, yeah. So this feels like kind of her first big break and it feels like she's kind of nervous behind there. But at the very least, she fits better than anyone else because you we mentioned all these other names of people who are woefully miscast like obviously a Dane DeHaan that was his unfortunate bread and butter after Chronicles yeah, just uh, like oh let's put you in anything and it's yeah, like yeah, you yeah. can't put that dude in anything and they're trying to make him like you mentioned the Leonardo DiCaprio for this and it's like oh no he's flailing and I, I think that dude would like he hasn't done much after this year was the combination of this and Valerian and uh, like I think there's one other one that I'm forgetting, but like this was 2017 was like the last straw. Yeah, Cure for Wellness. Yes, Cure for Wellness was the third one. Those three movies bombing this hard, they're not going to attempt to give him big stuff anymore. And he's been doing television now. I hope that dude comes back and just gets to be the weird Brad Dorf style character actor he should be. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what he needs to do. Is just be like a weird, creepy guy in a movie. Just like perfect. You're so good for that, but. Like, there's him, and there's also two people we haven't mentioned that show up in this movie. One, Matthew Morrison of Glee fame. Just, he's, he pops up like a fucking jump scare. That's so weird. It was so weird. He plays, like, the uh, bravado badass, like, yeah, I'm a womanizer. I'm going around just like, Will Schuster, get the fuck out of here. Just, no one any, likes you. If there's any actor who screams badass, it's Mr. Shu. <laughs> I mean, clearly. clearly. <laughs> Remember when that dude did covers for Glee and was on the pop charts? Remember when yeah, yeah. Th- we let that happen? Um, oh and then the weirdest one being, like, the buddy of Dane DeHaan's artist character, played by Zach Galifianakis, yeah. fresh off the Hangover trilogy, which is so weird. It feels like he's also in a different movie where, like, he is in a time travel comedy. Yeah. He shows up in Amsterdam <laughs> from, like, the yeah. Hangover movies. It just doesn't That's make pretty any funny. Sense. Yeah. It's like, I would watch that. <laughs> that's that's true, right? Um, and his whole storyline too, where he has to get the expensive tulip, and he gets distracted by saving a donkey, and then everyone's like, "Our hero, let's get him drunk." <laughs> when the holy fuck was that? It's so weird, and like you know, Dane DeHaan, Ishvi Kandrick, even Cara Delevingne, like you can see why they're cast in this movie because like they're very, like, they're young, they're hot, they're, like, about to break out. But then because this movie gets delayed for, like, a, a decade or whatever, by the time it comes out, it's, like, even Alicia Vikander is kind of, like, past her it girl status, you know? Like, she wins her Oscar and kind of, like, goes away for a bit. I mean, she resurfaces for a Tomb Raider, which I like a lot. You know, she kind of goes back and kind of does her, has a little, like, fun, quiet life with Michael Fassbender. And Dane DeHaan, as you mentioned, like, his career kind of just gets derailed from this year. And Cara Delevingne, I mean... She's living her life. But, like, it's just, it's so weird. But then, yeah, you get to Zach Galifianakis. And I'm like, envision Zach Galifianakis in a movie like this that were a little bit better, a little bit more, like, self-aware. But, like, here, it's just, like, 
it's so everything's so like slipshod it's so haphazard that like nothing makes sense because there's no like connectivity between what's happening in any of these subplots no yeah especially when like the movie will be taken over by any of these characters at any point and leave a lot of the people in the desk like holiday granger who weirdly is the narrator of this movie somehow despite the fact that she's like such a side character in the middle of all this and she's the one i kind of feel the worst for because this would have been around the time when she was in a bunch of these historical yeah yeah of sorts and felt like oh she could be the one to like break out but then like a florence Pugh basically does that like right after this yeah i mean and the thing is that like i feel that the pregnancy plot like like that should have culminated at the end of the movie where it's like that like the the climax is like the birth scene where they do like the switcheroo and stuff, but that happens like way earlier than I remembered. And then the movie just kind of like goes on for another, like, I don't know, 25 minutes or so. And you're just like, what is happening? I don't care about any of this. Like but everything got resolved. Like what's happening. Right. And it's the weird thing where Christoph Waltz in theory should be the villain of the story and should be just like, Oh my God, he's this, awful dude just completely leaves her to the side and then is going to be so angry when this happens and instead he's just kind of like aloof he's just kind of like in the background just like oh i love that you're doing this you're i can't wait for our baby and then he finds out later like oh i guess she died and doesn't the the scene in particular where like holiday granger meets back up with jack o'connor who plays the fishmonger guy and she just exposits the whole reveal while he's like (laughs) five feet away yeah, yeah that's stuff that feels like it's a fucking parody it's just like really and then christoph waltz's reaction just being like oh well i didn't treat her right anyway uh you take the house i'm leaving yeah there's like no drama to it no, like, no. not that i want to see him like yelling and throwing things and hitting people but like i feel some kind of like tension and danger that because like i don't know i what's your take on christoph waltz as an actor he's very good at doing like one particular mode I think that's that's kind of the thing. It's like he won two Oscars for playing the, same the very role. the same role, a very good yeah. role, like character, but the same character basically. One is a hero, one is a villain. Yeah, and it, it, he's another guy where like after Tarantino brought him out to everybody, like oh my guy is such a great actor. I can't think of a non-Tarantino movie where he really popped for me. I feel like we all got tricked into thinking he was some brilliant actor because he was like this, not that he was like a newcomer, but like he was new to America, I guess. And so we were like, oh, wow, like here's this like cool guy from, you know, Germany or whatever. And then he just does the same thing over and over. I mean, it's like, and this movie, I'm like, this solidifies that because like he's not even good in this movie and he's playing the same kind of character. But at the very least, the other people try to imbue him with some kind of conflict as opposed to like we mentioned a guy who's kind of in the background and then it's just like oh you know what after realizing my entire last few months was a total lie and that my wife has left me i'm just gonna fuck off and you guys can take the house yeah yeah (laughs) there's no humanity there it's just like what the fuck are you talking about no one would react like this yeah yeah i guess you would ask me this question i guess i'll reverse it here could you see any kind of a good movie here could you see any form of this, even if we took, like, one specific storyline? Like, you kind of mentioned the tulip thing. Yeah. Do you think that could even sustain, like, a whole movie on its own or not? I don't think the tulip thing could have been its own movie. I mean, I hate when people are like, oh, this should be, like, a miniseries, because I'm like, we should be movies. We can't convert everything into a miniseries, but, like, I would love to see, like, an HBO show about, like, the tulip, you know, industry of this time. I think if you pick one subplot, 
and then flesh it out, make it a little bit more organic, make it more authentic, you know, do some like major script editing. I think it could work. I think this like trying to tie in the tulips to the pregnancy to everything else that's happening. It just feels so like everything's just so rushed. And you also need, you need a director with more of a visual style than just someone who's trying to replicate, you know, the Miramax, um, you know, look, you know, this movie just feels like, the auteur, as you were saying earlier, is Miramax, you know, just like how all, all MCU movies kind of have that, like, MCU look. I mean, I feel like that's the same with here, where it's just like, this movie just looks like, you know, every movie that's like this. I guess there's more of a distinction, I guess, between, like, the Miramax and even the Weinstein company version. Of this yeah, yeah. Especially right. at this point, it feels so much like it's Harvey Weinstein trying to get that Miramax feel, but because he's working with even less money and has that more of that desperation, it's like, oh, this feels, like, grungier, but in a way that's completely contradictory to, like, what the movie's trying to do. Right, Because, right. like, it looks like this version of Amsterdam is, like, it looks so grimy and shitty. But not in a way that would be, like, oh, that could be, like, some kind of interesting contrast to the love story. It's like, no, we're still trying to have a romantic, beautiful story that already doesn't work because Dane DeHaan and Alicia Vikander do not have any kind of chemistry. And the plentiful sex scenes fall flat like a fish. Every time they're like having sex with each other, just like, oh, this, you guys, especially it's we were like, I think Alicia Vikander is supposed to be younger than Dane DeHaan's character, but he always looks like a boy. He looks like he's, yeah, 12 years old. Right. And he's, especially his, even his facial hair looks like boys' first facial hair. Just like, look, I'm a rebel. I have a terrible, wispy mustache. It all just like feels miscalculated. Yeah, yeah. And this is also, like, there's other things we haven't even mentioned, like Tom Hollander is the weird, creepy doctor that shows up for comedic relief. That's really upsetting. Yeah, this this scene where, like, he's, like, telling her to, like, put her legs in, like, the stirrups or whatever, and he's like, oh, no, it's out of habit. I don't, we don't actually need that or something. I'm like, what a weird joke. Again, it's hard for me to, like, watch a movie like this, like, watch a right. scene like that, knowing, like, that like wine scene is probably like off camera, like getting turned on or whatever. Like right, and Tom Hollander looks like he's doing it under duress. Yeah, time. yeah. Like, a great I'm, character actor, just like oh my god, I can't. I know, I felt so this. bad for him because I'm like, I don't want to be creeped out by you because I like you a lot as an actor. Right, and then also another weird person, Dame Judy Dench, showing up as the main nun at the Abbey, who grows the tulips. Which sounds like it'd be a much more interesting story to follow. Just like how does this nunnery like make money through tulips? Yeah, yeah. The scenes where um, Jack O'Connell comes over to try and get the tulips from Judy Dench, and there's that shot where she like sits down at her desk with like a giant cigar, and she's like, "Let me tell you how this works. You gotta buy the tulips from me, and then you gotta give me a cut of the profits and shit like that." It just, but like that's cool, right? Yeah. But that's a cool I, idea. Yeah, I want to see Judy Dench as like the tulip, you know, Godfather or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you come to me on the day of my nunnery's big celebration. <laughs> Asking for a tulip. Exactly. Like, I feel like this nunnery needs to be, like, the front for, like, the tulip mafia. Like, that's what I want to see. Um, but she's just, like, relegated to being, like, you know, Judy Dench in a Judy Dench role. You know, she's been doing this kind of thing since she won her Oscar, you know, in Shakespeare in Love. And it's like, come on, lady, you're much better than this. Even in, like, these kind of, like, safe kind of Oscar-y type movies like Philomena, like, she's so good in that movie. 
But here it's just like you're so much better than this. Well, it it helps also that like a Philomena is such a simple story that yeah. mainly involves just two characters, yeah. which I'm fine with more than like this elaborate production with these costumes that don't look terrible and even these elaborate production design details, which is like, oh, this feels like a shitty version of Amsterdam. Um, it it just it really sinks even for like oh all of this is for naught so much not it's just like it, it's it very much is a movie that only existed to try and get any kind of nominations which there are plenty of those other historical romance movies that were done just for like oh can we get a costume design thing regardless regardless we've talked about this movie for quite a while let's just yeah. <laughs> quick final thoughts uh, about this one and especially i'm curious uh where do you think like what do you think makes a great historical romance work compared to like what this movie doesn't do like what what does this do wrong that you love so much about other historical romances by comparison R- romance whether historical or modern lives and dies on two things characters and um a sense of place like a world that's kind of been built for you you feel like you live in that place because everything is so fleshed out and tulip fever has bland characters that don't make sense characters that kind of act like they're in a movie rather than characters who are like living people and um this movie has like no sense of time or place and even in the setting that's kind of unique where, you know, tulips are kind of like, you know, the, the hot commodities doesn't do anything special with that. And it just feels very by the numbers. And what makes it such a awful movie is that it, there's elements of it that were that could work, but it's just, it's so lazy and it's regressive and it's stupid. And it just doesn't really offer anything new. And in fact, serves to really highlight the stereotypes that people have about romance films and there's no care to it there's no tenderness there's no vision for it either yeah i mean i would echo all of that and i think it's also very adamant about the fact that like i think harvey weinstein was a guy that kind of helped portray that kind of stereotype about these movies because he's like just pumped those out every single year and really tried to schmooze up to like hey i really want you know the uh, nominations i want to have this under my belt as like a trophy basically that i made this thing that like gets such a claim and the trouble is like as you know he more things came out I just revealed like oh he was a very desperate man on a lot of levels uh and that included trying to like get his name to be much more present at the cost of the, you know, so many things, much more important things than movies. But at the same time, this is kind of like such an appropriate, like whimper of an ending to that dude's producerial career. All this like giant attempts at like big spectacle and like big sweeping romance and attempts at like really getting Oscar Beatty kind of acclaim uh, to just total dead silence and no one giving a shit. I think perfect way to end that dude's career. Um, yeah. It's a very terrible, very bad movie that uh, has been lost to time with good reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not even interesting enough to watch as like a so bad it's good type movie, you know? No. But I, I agree with you, totally appropriate that this movie kind of ends a career as like a shadow of its best self, you know? I mean, ends a production company or distribution company where it's like, you know, all this horrific stuff happened behind closed doors and now the result is this like you know, skeleton that barely functions as, you know, a piece of filmmaking. A deservedly whimper of an ending right there, for sure, for him. But uh, now, let's get to a much less whimper-filled film uh, from a much better auteur. Uh, We have a sense and sensibility. This holiday season, one motion picture will bring you all the surprises that life and love can offer Marianne and Eleanor 
as different as two sisters can be. Do you love him? I do not attempt to deny that. I think very highly of him, that I greatly esteem him. Esteem him? Like him? The more I know of the world, the more I am convinced that I shall never see a man whom I can truly love. From Jane Austen's timeless classic. There's some blue sky. Let us chase it. Comes a motion picture beyond all expectations. Academy Award winner Emma Thompson. Alan Rickman. Kate Winslet. And Hugh Grant. Sense and Sensibility. So Sense and Sensibility came out December 13th, 1995 from director Ong Lee and also written by uh, the star Emma Thompson based on the Jane Austen novel. And uh, I'll briefly have my initial thoughts here because I know uh, my guest has a lot to say (laughs) about this particular film. Um, I hadn't seen this movie actually until around the time I was actually getting my second vaccine dose. And I was like in, in bed and I was like, oh my God, I need something to cheer me up. And I mean, it's such an incredibly charming movie that I was, you know, kind of against when I was younger just because I'm like, oh, Jane Austen, not my kind of thing. Obviously, once again, feeding into that weird sexism that I was raised in about these kind of movies. And then you watch this movie and it's incredibly charming. So delightful. One of the best, like, cast of great British actors of that time possible. And a phenomenal turn from a director who had not made a full film in English. He had made a couple movies where one of the languages spoken was English with like the wedding banquet and stuff. Like yeah. That. This was his first totally English language movie. Um, so I think it's great. And I'll elaborate more on that after, sir, please, you have the floor. <laughs> to talk right. Because I believe I, when we told you this was going to be the movie, you were exceptionally excited because I believe this is just like one of your favorite movies ever. Right. Oh yeah. This is like, yeah, I mean, buckle up, kids, because I have a lot to say. <laughs> Better go start doing my taxes over here. Go ahead, please. I mean, exactly. Like, you know, call your wife, tell her you're, you're going to be home late. Um, <laughs> no, I, it's just like, Ang Lee is, he's one of my guys. You know, like, he's on my Mount Rushmore. I love everything he does. I will live to defend him to my dying days. And, and this movie was really the first movie that I saw of his. At least, well, is either, I think, the Hulk... Broca Mountain and this movie all kind of saw around the same time. I remember I first saw this movie because my friend Lauren bought me the DVD for my 16th birthday or 15th birthday. And I had never seen it before. She was like, oh, you know, I know you love movies and I know you love Jane Austen because I, I was talking a lot about the Keira Knightley Pride and Prejudice movie, which I also love. And so she got this for me as a gift. And uh, I was sure enough, I watched it and you know, this is like during the height of my Harry Potter fandom. So I was playing a lot of like Catch the Hogwarts Professor. And just throughout the years, I've just have kept revisiting it over and over. And the more I watch it, the more I find new details to love about it. And, you know, I, I shared with you this article I wrote for Talk Film Society about the making of this movie. I wrote it for our Ang Lee retrospective when Gemini Man was coming out. And as I discovered Ang Lee more and more over the last couple of years and seeing how varied his career was, I'm like, how did this Taiwanese filmmaker end up making this very, like, you know, austere Jane Austen adaptation? And, you know, we can get to it, but like the history behind the making of this film is fascinating to me. I mean, but yeah, Sense Sensibility, I love this movie. I mean, I think that it's just one of the smartest screenplays. It's um, very funny, very like low-key stripped down, even for some a movie that looks as lavish as it does. 
Um, I think Ang Lee's visual flair is perfectly suited for this movie because he kind of takes the like stuffiness out of Austin adaptations and um, just brings it into this like kind of modern sensibility. At, at its core, it's a movie about family. It's a movie about sisters and it's a movie about um, classism, you know, friendship and and all this and all these things. And I don't know if you've, I mean, since you've watched all these movies and having seen The Wedding Banquet and Eat, Drink, Man, Woman and The Ice Storm, it's like, this movie just feels so natural. Even uh, even alongside Crouching Hager, Hidden Dragon, it feels very natural. And Brokeback Mountain as well. His work as an auteur, like, it feels like this movie is just a, you know, a beautiful bridge point between his work in, um, you know, in Eat, Drink, Man, Woman and The Wedding Banquet and then you know, his American, other American films. And I mean, Emma Thompson, I mean, her screenplay is like, I think an amazing adaptation of the novel, which I read that, I read the novel, I think in high school or in college. This is like a 100 out of 100 movie for me. Um, So I could go on and on about everything that I love about it. That's so perfect, but I will let you speak so I can not annoy your listeners. (laughs) Oh yeah, what he said. (laughs) <laughs> um, but but no, I mean I agree, especially considering like some of the things you are kind of referencing, particularly that Emma Thompson had written sketch comedy before this in England, but had never written a full screenplay before is astonishing to me. Yeah, because I haven't read the book, but the way that this story, especially, does such a great job of conveying that familial relationship with like the everyone in the Dashwood family. Like I totally believe that like Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet are sisters and that uh, Gemma Jones is the matriarch is like in this kind of struggle that Emma Thompson has to kind of like help her under. And then also even uh, the smaller one, uh, Fanny is so fun as like a little sister character where it totally feels like, Oh, these are all people in the same family. These are not actors that they hired. Oh, sorry. Uh, totally... You mean um, Margaret oh, Fanny's a sister-in-law. Yeah. Yes. My, my apologies. Yes, uh, Margaret. <laughs> Uh, Emile Francois. Yes, uh, she's she's great. I, I love that relationship between that main family. It does yeah. such an inc- like it's such a great thing of like you mentioned. In worse hands, you could do like a very stuffy version of the story. That's so much more about like oh we have these elaborate costumes we're showing off and the actors are mere mannequins. Yeah, kind of like deliver it in a pithy sort of British sense and sensibility, as it were. But. This movie does such a great job of being, like you mentioned, very naturalistic, where it feels like, oh, I'm just there in that time. It feels like I'm very much transported to that period, which is a big credit to, like, Ang Lee and, like, the cinematography and everything that really gets you immersed. Like, there's that whole shot where it's um, Emma Thompson and Hugh Grant are walking on the grounds. Yeah. And it's a gorgeous shot of just this field that feels just like I'm there in that field. So many great shots were like on paper once again, just like, oh, there are a bunch of shots of people walking in fields. Why would I be interested in that? And then you watch and it's just like, oh no, these are just people living this particular time. And they feel like actual three-dimensional characters who are speaking obviously in a way that people wouldn't speak like in a modern sense, but in like just seeing these actors act so naturalistically and deliver this dialogue so naturally, it feels so wonderful down to even like a Hugh Grant being here in the right in the middle of his stammering career where he yeah. just made his bread and butter. I'm like, um, um, excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm, 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 uh, no, no, I, hold on. No, I didn't can't finish the sentence here. He does it so briefly and so few and far between that when he is able to have like that kind of stammering like awkwardness it really works like I love the scene where Kate Winslet gives him a line reading uh. basically off the poetry and the look he gives of just like who are you and why are you doing this to me <laughs> is so good it's so it's like you mentioned so naturally funny it's so wonderful you know that scene is is great and um, there's just so many like little character interactions that are just like 
so funny. Like one of my favorite um, scenes, also involving Hugh Grant and and with Emma Thompson, and and they're with uh, Lucy Steele, and everyone's kind of like everyone knows a secret that Edward is engaged to Lucy, but no one can say, no one can tell anyone that they know it. And so he comes, sees Lucy's there, and then just like sits for like five seconds, and then just like gets up and and leaves. And it's very funny. Um, it's just like it's just awkward. Oh, another really great moment is. Um, there's a scene where like uh, Mrs. Dashwood and Marianne are both crying about, you know, Willoughby or something. And then Margaret starts crying because no one's telling her what's going on. And then Emma Thompson just kind of sitting there with like a cup of tea, just being like, what do I do with these like three crying women? <laughs> and it's very funny because like, you're not laughing at these characters. Like Ang Lee, I, if I recall correctly, he said that he hadn't read this novel because he thought it was like for girls. So he was very much in that lane of like, you know, this is girl stuff. I'm a boy, which is very funny because his movies are, I think, very feminine. But you know, I think because of this, because of Emma Thompson's screenplay and these characters and these performances, he's resisting kind of laughing at this, but rather like laughing with them with all this like, you know, romantic entanglements and you know betrayal. You know, like. Marianne spending hours crying about not getting a letter or getting a letter that she didn't want to get. But it's like, it's funny, but it's also like you feel for her and it's it's heart-wrenching. It's so smart to hire a comedian to write the screenplay because especially someone like Emma Thompson, who's incredibly intelligent and obviously she's very good at comedy and drama um, as an actress. So she naturally can pick out both those elements from the, from the screenplay. And then you know, Lindsay Doran, we should mention, is the producer who, um, this is her passion project. This has been something that she had been, you know, wanting to do for her entire career after doing movies like This Is Final Tap and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Like, she's a very prolific producer before this film. And then she, like, created this project out of thin air and was like, I love this novel. Let's do it. Found Emma Thompson and then was like, let's get an international guy to do this movie. And they found Ang Lee off the strength of The Wedding Banquet. You wouldn't think this movie, which is like, you know, as you're saying, could be seen as Oscar bait, very stuffy adaptation. You wouldn't think it would have this like fascinating genesis, but it's really quite interesting. And then this, the production, there's so many stories of these British actors not knowing like how to react to Ang Lee's style of filmmaking. Cause it's very different, I guess, in, in his homeland than it was, than it is in England. Like I, one thing they, they mentioned is how unused he was to actors making suggestions. Cause that's just not how he was brought up to do it. And but eventually they all kind of figured it out and they found a balance. And I don't think anyone from this movie speaks any ill of Ang Lee. I don't think anyone, I've, I've never heard anyone say anything negative about Ang Lee as a, as a filmmaker, as a leader on these projects. You know, they found that balance. And, you know, what I love about this movie is this movie is all about finding the balance between love and friendship, between sisters who are opposites, between, you know, the rich and the poor, between the, the city and the country, you know. There's all these ways that everything can be true at once without anyone having to like win or, or lose. It, it all kind of comes together. Yeah, I think it's because despite Emma Thompson and Ang Lee being very different people creatively, they both have like a similar respect and like for empathy. Yeah, characters. absolutely. And I think that's what really works is like so much of it, the way that whether he represents it visually or she represents it on the page, does such a great job of really presenting like, look, you like these people are real, despite the fact that they're people from this old dusty book that was on your library shelf at school. They find a real humanity that really works for those characters, particularly with like the Kate Winslet character. You really are kind of swept up in her 
like love her growing like crush on Greg Wise as Willoughby. Yeah. Like, like the moment that dude shows up like on a horse saving her from the fog, you're just like, oh, he's he's my hero too. I'm so glad. And then when you find out his deception, you are similarly hurt with her. Just like, I can't believe that man did that to you, but me also, the audience member. How dare he do that to me? He, those lovely sideburns, they fooled me. <laughs> I can't believe it. You know, credit to Jane Austen as well. I think her novels are bitingly funny and very, I mean, the reason why there's so many adaptations that come out. I mean, we recently got, you know, a new Emma with Anna Taylor-Joy. There's so many Jane Austen movies from India as well, which is, you know, you wouldn't think it, but there's just, they're so relevant to today's time period. And her observations about, you know, relationships and friendships still relevant today. You know, we all know a Lucy Steele. We all know a, a Fanny Dashwood. We all know a, a Mary Ann's. You know, we all know a Willoughby too. I mean, Willoughby is like, you know, the Dane DeHaan of, of that time. But so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's really, I think, quite a wonderful movie. Um, and I agree with you about the empathy. And I, I agree that like you get swept up. I mean, I even I get swept up by Willoughby and I've seen this movie a million times. I'm like, you know, he comes in with the, with his flowers that he plucked from the field and he's reciting Shakespeare. And I'm like, you know, marry me. I mean, everyone is like swept <laughs> up by him. Um, and I think even with his deception, there's some empathy for him too, because they show him at the end watching the wedding from afar. And you know, I'm yes. like, man, this guy, I think he actually did love Marianne. He just couldn't marry her. You just, you feel for him. Obviously he did awful things in the past as well, but there's still that empathy there. The movie is so complicated, even for its simplicity. Right, yeah. Because immediately like the first time I watched this, when it immediately starts off with like Tom Wilkinson dying, it's like, okay, so he's got the second family that is yeah. getting completely cut off. And then there's the other family that's moving in. It's a lot of information to soak in initially, but then once we especially just focus so much on the Dashwoods, it, like you immediately get the entire dynamic of the family and how like you know emma thompson's trying to help her mom keep the family afloat while the two younger sisters despite being very different in age have a similar kind of flight of fancy to them and there's that kind of conflict that's there but you really believe that like especially emma thompson and kate winslet so many scenes like the bit where kate winslet basically finds out that willoughby's been a liar this whole time and emma thompson's just like well did he say he was gonna marry you yes no, um, I mean, I, I don't know. And it's like, it, that feels very natural. Like, oh, these, despite the fact that they're, you know, these people that we, especially younger, know, like, oh, Kate Winslet, Emma Thompson, such higher esteemed peers. It's like, oh, no, they're like kids who don't know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a real charm to that, despite the fact that we've just been roped up. There's, it's a, there's a lightness that's there, but all the emotions feel very grounded and sincere, and the stakes from their perspective feel so real. So once again, when Kate Winslet's crying, they're just like, I can't believe that man did you wrong. Yeah. You deserve to not have that happen. Or even with like Emma Thompson, it's like, no, go to Hugh Grant. He's so charming. He doesn't stutter that much. He's the perfect version of Hugh Grant. Go to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. And Kate Winslet's, I think she has a really hard character because it's it, it can be easy to kind of get annoyed by a character like that because she's so impulsive and she's so like, you know, she gets swept up so easily. Um, but I think there's such a humanity to her too. And, you know, a, another scene I love is when they're at that ball and she sees Willoughby and she goes, Willoughby loudly and it kind of stops the party. Willoughby's fiance is Sophia Gray. I remember her neck being really long in that scene. And in the book, the Jane Austen mentions her having a really long neck. And I was like, wow, what, what, what great casting for this extra who has no lines. These situations are just so relatable. You know, we've all kind of embarrassed ourselves at a party, you know. Um, we've all had guys who are like, 
you think you're in a relationship with them, but you're kind of not because they actually never say it. And you're like, wait, what's happening? So it's just like, it's, it's relatable. And I think this, um, the, the screenplay and the direction really emphasize that. And I, what I, you know, Ang Lee, what I love about him is that he is uh, able to make these like really gorgeous visuals without being too obvious about it. Like he just has this like elegant style to him that's like lushly romantic and lavish, but without like too much like ornate decoration or too much like grandiosity, like uh, Alejandro Gonzalez and Yaritu, you know, like. Right, where it's not like extremely showy. We're just like, look at how great this shot is. Ang Lee's just like, here's my shot. Isn't it? Doesn't look exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right right there's a there's a bit more of like a humbleness that's there yeah i agree and even like he'll make like so many so much this movie is just people talking back and forth with each other but still feels so visually dynamic like someone who for some reason we haven't mentioned that much it's a shame uh alan rickman oh yeah uh, who is such a wonderful complete contrast to what obviously like you mentioned the harry potter thing we were were younger we know him so much as snape or even older people would know him from like die hard right and it was immediately just like all the baddest villain around the great british evil villain of all time and here he's such a quiet lovely man and the scene where he talks to emma thompson and just reveals all the things about like i i had a ward basically that i took this child and i gave her too much freedom all this other stuff it's such a visually dynamic scene just the way that he's standing in repose the entire time while Emma Thompson is sitting down. We're like in Emma Thompson's point of view, basically. Just yeah, like, yeah. Oh, uh, we're on the edge of our own seats, just like, oh, oh no, Alan, no. I can't believe this happened to you, Alan. Yeah, and like Colonel Brandon just being the most like useful person in the world. Like yes. he just always seems to know what to do. Um and I agree. And I, I think a lot like that that scene between them is so visually dynamic, even if it's just back it's back and forth editing, but it's the performances are so visceral. The direction is so light of touch and nimble and the writing is so strong that it feels so dynamic, even for something in, in lesser hands could just be like, you know, point and shoot and shot reverse shot. Yeah, and especially for, like, Rickman, who was so typecast at this point, the way that he has, like, such a true empathy, but a real respect, even for, like, Willoughby, where he talks about, you know, I I think he did truly love her, and it's a, you know, it's a shame that all this other stuff, like, that's the kind of thing where there's no, like, villain in this movie, really. You could easily make Willoughby just, like, the evilest man possible. Yeah, but yeah. But nobody is truly out and out a villain. Some people can be antagonistic, but in a way that, like, just feels natural for people to be that way. It doesn't feel like anybody is, like, totally in the wrong as much as like no these are people living their lives and sometimes that conflicts with another person trying to live their life it makes it once again this kind of stuffy in theory material feel so much more natural so much more human in a way where i'm like shit i wish i'd seen this earlier this would have like opened my door to a lot more of these movies that could have hopefully like but then again because this is one of your favorites do you think other what what do you think other like sort of uh, costume romance dramas like this can really learn from like what ang lee put to it do you think there are other films that have like even come close in a similar way. I mean, I would say that the 2005 Pride and Prejudice comes very close. I mean, that's another all-time favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what the two movies have in common is that the visual language is um, very uh, elegant and specific, and there's there's a vision to it. You know, Joe Wright is a very visionary filmmaker, especially, you know, in his movies like Pride and Prejudice, Atonement, Anna Karenina, Hannah, um, you know, those four, I think, especially have such a, like, unique vision to them. And the characters, you know, feel real. They feel relatable. They, the films are able to kind of pluck out this, like, 
modern feel from these stories and kind of flesh out what makes Jane Austen so vibrant and so vital, even, you know, centuries later. So I, I think that the thing to learn is like, you need to have some kind of like visual design that feels cinematic and feels something that you like built yourself rather than trying to emulate a style of a movie. And, um, you need the, the writing has to be sharp. I mean, even I think the 2020 Emma does a really good job of this as well. I think I'm a big fan of that movie um, where it's like, you know, Autumn DeWilde, who, who directed that film, she has a very specific vision as well, where it's like her vision is very like pop feminine, very colorful. That movie is very funny. I mean, Emma, I think is Jane Austen's funniest book, in my opinion, but um, that we really highlights the comedy and highlights, you know, makes Emma a very flawed but lovable character. I think going back in time, you know, the Merchant Ivory films, I think, were excellent at this because those movies were like, you know, like Howard's End, Maurice, Remains of the Day, A Room with a View. They're so dynamic. They're so sensual. You know, you wouldn't expect them like Howard's End to be like sensual. And A Room with a View especially is a very sensual movie. Um, and then we have like graphic nudity as well, which you would not expect. There's a heat to them. And I think there's a heat to sense sensibility as well. These characters are, are, you know, they might be like repressed and British and whatever, but they also kind of wanted to like have sex with each other. <laughs> they wanted to have these like advantageous marriages and they wanted to like get together and like get matched up. And it was kind of like, you know, the unspoken thing is like, it's kind of all about getting it on. So it's to like remember that and like kind of bring that like intensity and heat to it. And, you know, Tulip Fever fails by like having a lot of sex scenes that aren't sexy because there's there's no sensuality there. There's no like passion or heat or intensity there. Whereas like some sensibility, like you kind of feel that intensity between Willoughby and Marianne. And you kind you kind of feel it as well with um Hugh Grant and and Emma Thompson too. Like these people might have lived hundreds of years ago, but they're still people. They still had all the same, you know, flaws and whatever that that we have. Yeah, I think especially with like I joked about this with Marvel movies, but in general, like modern cinema has been so sexless. Yeah. Oh God. Don't. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> well, that, that's true. It's a very other podcast, but I really think it fits with like even though this movie has no like nudity or graphicness to it in any degree, it still has a lot more of like a sensuality that like really builds up between characters where you believe once again, like you mentioned, like the Marianne and Willoughby back and forth that that tension that's really there between the two of them and that which makes the crushing disappointment work so much later and then also makes how reliable like the the colonel is so wonderful because it just feels like oh you can have that like earlier like passionate uh flight of fancy romance that you have when you're younger but then realize oh someone who's actually stable and like really cares about you is what matters even more colonel brandon carrying marianne at the end of the movie and he's like limping because he has his injury and he's like, older obviously and it's raining that to me is like hotter than like anything that you know the mcu is no i'm not an mcu hater i love the mcu i watch everything over and over again you know but there's it's like tangibly sexy it's sexy because like he's in pain and he's supporting her and this is just another this is one of a thousand ways that he's going to help this family he's like you're saying he's reliable he's sturdy he's he's affectionate I think as Marianne starts to realize that she sees him in a whole new light and he sees her as like, in some ways like they're also kind of bridging the gap between each other. Like he can become more like romantic and, and impulsive, just how she can become more stable and responsible. So it's like the chemistry is that like all these characters are kind of learning to be a lot like each other. 
and finding, you know, complementing each other's flaws with each other's strengths. You know, there's that like, it's like that back and forth. That's so, that just adds to the the romance of it. Wow. I mean, that's all fine and good, but I remember Steve Rogers kissed his crush's grandniece and I was just so enthralled by that. So I don't know. I think it's very, they're very even level. It's neck and neck. Yeah. It's neck and neck. <laughs> for sure. For sure. But, but no, yeah, I, I agree. And especially it's so weird considering like you mentioned that Ang Lee's weird career where after this, he would make stuff like the ice storm, you know, going into eventually like speaking of MCU, like the Hulk, like I find his career so fascinating because he still, I think carries that kind of empathy throughout his movies, even as he became so obsessed with like the uh, like the high frame rate thing yeah, later yeah. on, like he still at the same time really cares about his characters. Even in movies, I'm not as huge on like a Gemini Man or Billy Lynn's Halftime Walk, but you can tell he has that same kind of care and respect for his characters, despite the fact that you know there's potential cultural differences or anything else like that. He has this really profound empathy that really carries throughout all his movies. That makes like it's the one real tether that makes him feel like you know all these disparate kind of movies feel of a piece like where do you think this really kind of helped evolve his career after this point i think ang lee is interested in a couple of different themes that kind of recur in these disparate films um one is like family dynamics like repression and also like the relationships between adults and children or like or like older people and, and adult children and james Seamus, who was his collaborator and, and writer and uh, he says that the ice storm is like the mirror version of sense sensibility. And because um, sense sensibilities are people who live in like a repressed era who like learn to like be themselves and to follow their hearts. And the ice storm is about people who live in like the free love era who are even more repressed and... Um, One might say cold in the middle of the ice storm. Right, yes. exactly. And they're the ones that are fumbling with their like romantic and erotic desires and they can't figure out how to like function normally <laughs> and they're doing all these things that don't make sense right his his two previous films um sense sensibility ice storm broke up mountain crouch and hacker hidden dragon and less caution i think are a lot similar they have a lot of common themes and for and i think the genius of ang lee is that we might not be able to tie them all together I didn't notice the connection between the ice storm and sense sensibility until you pointed out to me. I think like Crouch and Tiger and Broke Mountain are like almost the same movie and which I don't think I noticed until he pointed it out. So it's like, he, he's think, he's like so much smarter than all of us combined. He, he kind of has all these themes and ideas that he's running through. And I think he explores them through these different genres, these different environments, these different countries. And I mean, I would even say that like Life of Pi, uh, taking Woodstock, Gemini Man, and Billy Lynn's long halftime walk are all extremely connected to each other in terms of like masculinity and finding yourself and being in a very strange environment and trying to understand your own desires versus societal expectations. So I, I think he's always thinking about these things. I mean, I really resist the idea that Ang Lee kind of lost his way after uh, Less Caution. You know, I mean, I love Life of Pi. I think that's like a top five favorite movie for me um, from him. But I, I really resist that because I think he is thinking about all these themes. And I think now he's doing it through his technology, which, you know, your mileage may vary. I'm like, look, do what you want, you know, <laughs> we will catch up to you. I think as his career evolves, he's like finding new ways to tinker with these ideas that he has and you know to see his progression from his first film pushing hands to sense sensibility you can see him maturing and kind of getting a better handle on his visual language 
you know, I mean, the jump from, you know, the wedding bank to eat, drink, man, woman is pretty significant. And then to go to San Sensibility is also very significant. I mean, I think Edric Man Woman is a masterpiece as well. So he's always improving and he's always finding new wit, new variations on on these themes and on these ideas. He has a very eclectic career and you know, we always talk about how um, versatile he is, and of course he is, but his auteurism comes to the fact that like his themes are always kind of constant and he's always finding you know, unique um, twists and turns on, on these common themes that, that he loves to play with. Yeah, even down to like with Hulk, like the strength of that movie, I would argue, and why it kind of feels underrated amongst like that era of comic book filmmaking is how like it's so ingrained in like the family dynamics between like, especially like Sam Elliott and Jennifer Connelly that like those right. scenes are like so electric and powerful in a way where it's just like, oh yeah, there's a green monster that shows up later in this movie. Right. <laughs> this, and even then with the green monster has that with the, uh, you know, the human comic book character Nick Nolte as his dad being just like a asshole Frankenstein man. We, we, we will get to that at some point. I want to cover that movie extensively because that movie is fascinating. You know what? If you do, please have me on because we will never get a superhero movie like that again. No, not never again. <laughs> because we, at the time, we, and I, I say we because I myself did not like that movie when I first saw it. Um, right. I didn't know who Ang Lee was at the time, so that's probably why, but... Right, and I was an 11-year-old who was just like, Hulk smash, and it's like, wait, what's this family dynamic bullshit? Like, I don't care. We, exactly, and well, because we at the time did not get it and did not appreciate that, like, he's trying to make a very, like, serious, like, melodrama around this comic book movie, and that this is, like, a nat- again, a natural progression from Ice Storm and Crouching Integrated and Dragon and then to this, it's like, it all builds to each other. It all builds upon each other. So I, I, I won't say that the Hulk, the Hulk is like my favorite Angli movie, but I definitely am the someone that feels like we need to keep watching it to understand what he's doing because he's on a different wavelength and like he's trying to do a million different things, like do this like father son story, father daughter story, like a movie that's like a comic book on screen. Like again, he's so much smarter than all of us. He's always thinking like eight steps ahead of us. So. I'm like, look, if you need to, if you're going to alienate everyone by just following your desires, go for it, man. I'm there with you. I will defend you. <laughs> like, he's just like, yeah, he's the greatest guy. You know, I've just, I mean, I could go on for another three hours about every movie of his and how great it is. But yeah, we've been going a while just on vaguely on sense and sensibility. Yeah. In general. So why don't we go ahead and at least wrap up if you can at all summarize your thoughts briefly on sense and sensibility. If you are someone who does not think they like romance movies or Jane Austen adaptations, I really, really recommend you to watch this film. It's a great movie and it's a great Austen adaptation and it's a great romance film. Um, but above all, I, I think it's a movie where everyone involved is makes the 100% correct decision from start to finish. From Lindsay Doran having the idea all the way through you know, the last day of you know, production or post-production or whatever. Even if you're someone that doesn't like this kind of movie, I think this is the best expression of this kind of movie. So like, just watch it to appreciate like what this, what a movie like this can be like when it's working on all cylinders. Yeah, I mean, I second all that, obviously. And I think it's also just interesting given 1995 gave us two very modern versions of Jane Austen adaptations between this and Clueless. Yes, yes. Which is an adaptation of Emma. And I think they're both really great studies in how to take 
that kind of story and modernize it, even though this movie stays close to the period and is more faithful. At the same time, it does have this modern sensibility that we were referring to, where, like, all the characters feel incredibly, like, real, and their interactions, it feels like they've been, you know, together forever at this point. It, it's such a great example of how, to, like, you can modernize it totally, like, clueless and have fun, but you can also do that with the actual text and just have it be like, we can keep the text, but have more of a natural flow to the dialogue and just cast the best people. Yeah. And it, it shows just all these people at like, so the top of their game. And we were like, yeah, I was somebody who similarly was, I'm, I'm not as learned on these like historical romance movies, but at the same time, I can get really swept up all the way down to, you know, like when Emma Thompson cries about Hugh Grant, I'm crying with her. Just like, yeah, oh yes, you get to him. <laughs> It's so beautiful. Like it, it, it's it really like sweeps you up. Despite you know not being a huge Jane Austen or historical romance person, you really get the emotional heft of it. It still feels very relatable and human, despite being you know people in stuffy British times. It's it's incredible. I fully expect to weep when I am proposed to, because I'll be like, like Eleanor. Thank God, someone wants to marry me. Um, but no, I mean, I, yeah, it's, you're exactly, you're right. You're just right there with the characters at all times. Yeah. Yes. You, you really feel it. Well, if we can, we must move away, unfortunately, <laughs> from Sense and Sensibility. Because uh, after we discuss our two films, uh, usually here, we do a segment called The Double Redo, where uh, myself and usually Adam and our guest are open to uh, recommend and not recommend a couple movies based on the topic that we're doing. So basically recommend the best possible double feature and the worst possible double feature related to, in this case, historical romance films. And um, I'll start with mine. I also have Adam's that I'll briefly state as well. Uh, but first, I'll uh, go ahead and do mine. I'll, my uh, good picks I have uh, first is, uh, we kind of mentioned this movie earlier, uh, Joe Wright's Adaptation of Anna Karenina, which is a story that, like, I'm, I haven't read the book on that one either. I remember when this came out, it was a similar thing, like, oh, you know, the stuff that I wasn't really interested in. And that movie does such a stellar job of making that story feel so, not necessarily human, but theatrical in the way that the big gimmick that uh, Joe Wright decided with the story is I'm going to stage it all in a literal stage, like an old dusty theater. So whenever they're like, say at a wedding banquet, it goes from like the top of the stairs is the actual stage. And they come down into where the audience would be for the actual dance that occurs. And it's, I think got such a great stellar cast. Some people from one of our movies today with like Cara Delevingne and Holiday Granger, but also it's, Probably my favorite of those era of the Kira Knightley just doing all these historical romance movies. Probably the best use of Aaron Taylor Johnson in any movie, to be fair. And an incredible Jude Law. Like, I love Jude Law in general, but that is such a great example of, like, playing a character who at first appears so cold, but does have a true empathy to him that still is complicated by his relationship with Kira Knightley. And it's so stellar, it's so beautifully shot, and I love, the, like, the costumes but also the just obviously that gimmick feels so immersive to the point where you just feel like you're in that theater in the middle of that environment and you only kind of notice after a certain point like oh wait we're in the middle of like a theater setting and how cleverly they stage that where like the homes are backstage versus the actual seating areas like become almost uh, like a different environment like they go to a fucking racetrack in the middle of this theater it's just beautifully transformed there's so much stellar stuff there i, I really really would recommend that movie uh the other good one i have is jane Campion's The Piano. The Piano was another one where I didn't know anything about it when I was younger. It was just like, oh, that's an adult movie. And then going back to it, it's just like, oh man, this, despite being like full of period era costumes and stuff, it is hot. 
it is a genuinely like once it, it's a very sexy movie that's about something so seemingly unsexy about like a Scottish woman who can't speak is uh, betrothed to this guy in uh, New Zealand uh, who is Sam Neill and there's no real romantic chemistry that's there and she, all she wants to do is express herself through her piano, which is taken by Harvey Keitel. Uh, who works for Sam Neill and is just like, look, I'll I want I'll have the piano here, but you can go ahead and like practice on the piano, teach me how to play the piano, which is all a ruse just because you know he thinks she's hot, and they eventually grow to have an affair, and it's such a great movie about like communication between people and how that casting of like, oh hey, Holly Hunter and Harvey Keitel are like really hot for each other. Not in a million years would I imagine that working. That's crazy that that would work at all, but it somehow does. It's such a, like it's such a great display of like Gene Campion's ability to like really direct actors and like really trust them to perform this stuff so realistically. Down to Anna Paquin was nine years old in this movie playing Holly Hunter's daughter, won a goddamn Oscar. Still one of the youngest people to ever win an Oscar. It's insane, uh, but. So yeah, a very stellar movie. If you kind of avoid it for similar reasons, I would firmly recommend it. Uh, it. It kind of transcends the stereotypes of that genre. And then my two bad, uh, just briefly, I have um, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, another Jane Austen adaptation, um, where this was from the Seth Graham Smith adaptation of the novel that he did as a novel himself, where it was just like, oh, what if we take the text of Pride and Prejudice and add zombies into it? And that sounds like a fun skit, and then if you read the novel, it's kind of like, oh, it's just occasional passages of zombies popping up in Pride and Prejudice. And then you watch the movie, and it's just like, oh, it's a bad Pride and Prejudice adaptation with a bad zombie movie. Horror fans and historical romance fans get nothing out of this. It's so dull and lifeless, far more than a zombie. It is such like a complete waste of time and effort. And then this other one I have is Tell It to the Bees, who, speaking of Anna Paquin, is in this movie where um, she is, plays this woman who has a young son, um, and they're kind of destitute, so they end up going over to Holiday Granger's house uh, because she has inherited this house from her uh, beekeeper father. It, it takes place in, like, the 1950s, and, uh, you know, uh, Anna Paquin ends up, you know, staying there with her son and grows to have a repressed sort of sexual relationship with Holiday Granger that's interesting initially, and then it gets kind of like it's so much more about buildup, but in a way that's kind of, like, not necessarily enticing you to see them get together, but just sort of dull. And then weirdly, this romance movie, like spoilers, I guess, ends with like a big horror sequence involving bees attacking people. It's such a baffling note for like the third act of this movie to go out on them. Just like, I don't even know what the fuck you're doing, guys. It's such a weird, bizarre movie that I saw at a festival and promptly forgot about. It, and most people have forgotten about because it, it feels like it's just not a movie that exists to any degree. Uh, but those are my choices. I'm sure you've seen some of these. I've seen your two good choices. Anna Karenina, yeah. I mean, everything you said is completely accurate. I think it's a really fascinating movie. Another movie that I think did not get its fair shake when it came out. I think a lot of people found the uh, setup really alienating, but it's quite a brilliant film. Uh, and the piano, I mean, like you just remind me, I need to get the Criterion 4K disc. Yes. Um, it's a great movie. And uh, yeah, I have not seen uh, the other two movies, but I have read the novel Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I think I read it in like high school or whatever. I thought it was very clever, but I'm sure at this point, I'm sure it's kind of lame. I guess when I was in high school, you know, who knows what I was thinking. But yeah, I didn't really want to watch the movie. Um, I haven't even heard of Tell It to the Bees. 
so I guess I'll not check that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have some choices for us as well. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, so um, my first good choice uh, is Howard's End, um, the Richard Ivory movie, also with uh, Emma Thompson and Anthony Hopkins and Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, it's a really lovely movie, also in in the Criterion Collection, and it all kind of revolves around this uh, kind of beautiful property of Howard's End, and uh, Emma Thompson plays a woman who befriends Vanessa Redgrave, uh, and on her on her deathbed, Vanessa Redgrave um, wills the property Howard's End to Emma Thompson, but uh, the family does not want her to have it. But then she, so no one really tells her. And then she kind of falls in love with Anthony Hopkins, who I believe is, oh, it's been a while. I think it's Vanessa Redgrave is either her brother or her son or her nephew or something. Um, so she ends up living there anyway. So it's this really kind of like romantic story about this, these kind of like families kind of clashing together. Um, I'm a big fan of the Merchant Ivory movies, especially this film and A Room with a View, which I also recommend. I think people will think of them as stuffy and kind of boring, but they're very dynamic. They're very uh, intense and very funny at times. Uh, and really beautiful, we made. I mean, Howard's End is such a beautiful film. And then my other recommendation um, for the double feature would be Far From the Manning Crowd from 2015, starring um, Carrie Mulligan and um, Matthias uh, Schoenartz, um, directed by Thomas Vinterberg, uh, you know, from Another Round. And... Um, this is a, another movie that I feel like it kind of doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, it kind of came, I think it was supposed to be kind of an Oscar play, but um, I guess it didn't really go through with it, but it kind of revolves around Carrie Mulligan playing um, Bathsheba Everdeen, who inherits a farm and is working on there. And it's sort of her like romantic entanglements um, with the various men around her and you know her as like this independent landowner in a time when women weren't really running property like this you know it is a beautifully made film but it's kind of beautiful in a kind of different way you know thomas vinterberg i think is a fascinating director you know he kind of does a this like romantic novel like but it's very like stripped down like kind of gritty looking um it's not very lavish in the sense of like what we think of lavish um but it's a really kind of cool looking movie the cinematography especially is something that i wanted to recommend um and carrie mulligan's performance uh really great i mean she's a you know a top talent in my opinion um but she's really good in this movie um it's as is matthias Schoenart. so i i recommend uh lo- looking out for that as well um if you're kind of in the mood for these kind of historical romance i think this is a really good modern one and then for my bad films uh one is uh, the other boleyn girl uh also directed by justin chadwick um, starring Scarlett Johansson, Natalie Portman, and Eric Bana. It's kind of a retelling of the Anne Boleyn story. I liked this movie a lot when I first saw it in college, but um, I, that was also like the peak of my like, Scarlett Johansson obsession. But I think this movie is kind of like, uh, it's kind of dull. It's very Tulip Fever-like um, in that like a lot happens. None of it really kind of coheres together. It's not very sexy. Uh, performances are kind of all over the place. I mean, I do think the central trio is at least trying you know, they're all really amazing actors, but this movie just is kind of blah. And I, I chose it because of the Tulip Fever connection, same filmmaker, a lot of the same problems where it's like these like weird story that just like doesn't really gel together at all. It's, it's not very sexy for like a, one of the most famous kind of like sexual 
you know, scandals of, you know, in the historical era, you know, it's not very exciting or nor does it really go anywhere kind of interesting. And then my final film is uh, Vanity Fair, directed by Mir Nair. Now, I hate to say anything bad about Mir Nair, but this is one of her weaker efforts. Um, she's an incredible filmmaker, but uh, this movie, I think, I just kind of got away from her, I think. It's uh, based on a novel um, called Vanity Fair, stars Reese Witherspoon, and it's basically a movie about a, a woman named Becky Sharp who is trying to kind of get rich, marry rich, or just kind of get ahead in society, get kind of a name for herself. And she kind of goes through all these like misadventures as she's trying to like find ways to, you know, um, elevate her status in society. I would say this movie looks really beautiful. You know, some of it takes place in India, which is kind of pretty to look at. And I think Reese Witherspoon is trying really hard, but I think it's almost too early in her career for her to take on a role like this now, if she were to do it in this sort of like, post Big Little Lies era, I think she kind of could pull it off. But this movie was uh, made in 2004. So she's a little early in her career. And she's like trying a little too hard to kind of uh, shake off her like good girl image from her like romantic comedy films and Legally Blonde. So it's also just kind of boring. It's two and a half hours long, um, which I don't mind. But for a movie this long, it feels very rushed and also slow at the same time. So I can't really find that tone. It's not that the story isn't interesting. Uh, Becky Sharp is a kind of a uh, fascinating character to follow, but it's just kind of dull. And a lot of the supporting characters kind of feel the same and it's hard to kind of keep track of what's happening. So it's, it's not a really good movie as much as I hate to say, because it, it has a lot of people that I admire working on it. Again, there's just not, there's no intensity to it. There's no heat to it. There's no tension. It's just kind of like goes from one scene to the next until it ends. Yeah, admittedly, I have not seen um, any of your films. Um, okay. I, I've wanted to see. I've wanted to see Howard's End, especially because, like, as sort of a bookend. Because weirdly, Emma Thompson won her acting Oscar for that one, and then she obviously won for Sense and Sensibility her screenwriting Oscar. One of the few people to do that. Both, yeah. uh, but unfortunately, I had. And but I will say, the other Boleyn Girl is kind of the movie when I was younger. I would immediately think of all of these historical romance movies as. Yeah, yeah. Just the, these kind of movies were just like, I don't know, I'm not interested. Especially at that time, I was a big Natalie Portman fan. And I was just like, all on, I would have been all on board for most of her other movies. And then the other Boleyn Girl just like, yeah, this looks dull. I don't know if I have much interest in it, I guess. That was uh, based on you and other people I've heard. That's pretty accurate about that one. Yeah. Um, and then I'll just briefly state uh, Adams here that he provided me earlier, uh, which are his good were uh, the Jane Eyre from 2011 oh, yes. and Dangerous Liaisons. And then his two bad were the 1995 version of The Scarlet Letter and actually Emma from 96. Oh, the Gwyneth Paltrow one? The Gwyneth Paltrow one, yes. I would love to hear what he has to say about that. I might ask him because I, I mean, I can't say that's a favorite, but I do like that movie. So I'd be curious. But I think those other picks make a lot of sense. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I I had only seen actually recently the Jane Eyre adaptation, um, just the a couple days ago, and that movie is stellar. Especially it's Kerry Fukunaga doing far more of like he saw that like hmm gothic romantic drama. Let's emphasize on the gothic really hard, and that movie looks so much like a sort of like hammer horror film, but at the same time it keeps that romance and drama so central. And it does such a great job of that. And especially that was at the time when Michael Fassbender was new. And it's just like, oh, all the promise that you had right before you had a pretty solid career for a bit. And then just completely nosedived and have not made a movie in years. It's so weird with that, dude. I want him to come back. 
I want I want the Michael Fassbender comeback, and I don't know if it'll happen. But also probably one of the better uses of Mia Wasikowska, a similar person who like I really liked in stuff like The Double, and other things like that. And then she also is kind of like seemingly disappeared and faded to the background, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but that is our double reduced segment. We'll repeat our titles as we usually do here. Um, I'll just say my two good once again were the 2012 version of Anna Karenina and the piano. And then my bad word, Tell It to the Bees and Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And I'll just say Adams once again were Lee Janier from 2011 and Dangerous Liaisons. And then his uh, bad were The Scarlet Letter from 1995 and Emma. And my good were Howard's End and Far From the Redding Crowd. And my bad ones were um, The Other Balloon Girl and Vanity Fair. Yes, and uh, we'll be doing our picking for next week's episode at the end of this, so stay tuned for that. But first, we got to thank some people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thorpe Lally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water. That's night with a K, underscore of, underscore water. Uh, over on Twitter, where you can find a link tree to all his great artwork. Uh, and, of course, we also want to thank uh, our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash gedbpod. Where for just $1 a month, you all get bonus podcasts that we do or get to vote in polls for stuff that we cover. Like, of course, uh, the Tulip Fever was your choice, and we appreciate it so much uh, (laughs) that you were able to give us uh, the opportunity to discuss that. And also, speaking of bonus podcast stuff, we do a show called On the Edge of Relevance, where we cover uh, new releases. And we'll be talking about the Steven Soderbergh film Kimmy. Uh, that would have released around this time. So you can hear us talk all about that. I'm very curious about that film. And, uh, of course, we want to thank someone very special here. Manish, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you being a guest. Please plug yourself. Where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. When we talked about doing this episode, I was like, man, I kind of want to be like, hey, can we do Sound Sensibility? But I don't want to push it. So I was like, I'll like let you, I'll like honor your you know, system. And then it worked out. So it was funny. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Vertigay314. That's V-E-R-T-I-G-A-Y 314. Also on Letterboxd under my name, Manish Mather. Um, you can read a lot of my writing at Talk From Society. I also want to plug an episode that I was on of my friend's podcast called The Mixed Reviews, where they go over whole careers of um, actors and directors and other filmmakers. And I did their episode on Ang Lee. So if you want to hear me talk more about Ang Lee and his entire career, uh, please go find that, The Mixed Reviews. It's a great podcast. I recommend that in general if you're a fan of film. And uh, also, you can follow my podcast at It Pod to Be You. Um, and find that on any streaming app. Uh, it's a bit of it's on a bit of a hiatus. We kind of um, come and go as new uh, romantic films come uh, come out. So we did an episode on Liquor Pizza and West Side Story. I'm saying we, but it's me and my guest um, who's different every time. Uh, so I did an episode on Liquor Pizza and West Side Story uh, most recently. But there's a whole backlog of episodes there. Um, so please check those out. Um, and yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and your show is great, particularly. I really liked the recent West Side Story one where you compare the original 61 movie with the Spielberg adaptation. That was a really stellar episode. Oh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we also uh, want to encourage you um, to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDVPod and to submit feedback to us over on our email, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. 
For more of my antics, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing over at both MarianiThomas.wordpress.com, my blog, and at Film-Crid.com, where I'm a staff writer. Um, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, uh, why not listen to all the other great shows like Pod to Be You, amongst others. And uh, you can also dig into our archives for several episodes we did before we even joined it to- on Talk Film Society on our Podbean main feed. Feed. And you know, if you can't support us on the Patreon, the completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or share the show around because that gives us more visibility out there. And you know, uh, we'll be doing our picking here for next week, uh, as we often do. Uh, usually, Adam and I each have uh, two good movies or two bad movies. We switch up on the quality for that, and we assign numbers between one and ten for them. Um, and then we get you know our good and our bad double feature uh, based on that, you know, from the other person choosing the numbers. And um, there's also, uh, I'll briefly just mention, there is the Godfather rule usually. I think I'm going to recuse that for now because I do have both Adam's and my choices here, and I have the ability to potentially veto a choice with the Godfather rule. But given I have, you know, knowledge of both of Adam's choices, I'm not going to go ahead and use my veto. I'll just say up front. Uh, But when Adam is back, we will potentially uh, be using that in the future. Uh, Though, Manish, uh, you have the ability now. You have to pick them between 1 and 10 for both my good choices and Adam's bad choices. So please, first, for my good choices for next week's episode on adventure films, which we're doing because uh, we've got the upcoming Uncharted movie, is, I guess, coming out? I I still doubt it. Despite the the trailers coming out, that movie has been in such weird production hell. I'm still not convinced it'll be in a theater. (laughs) Um, But uh, we're doing adventure films, and so for my two good ones... Please pick a number between 1 and 10. Uh, 7. Okay. At number 6, I have one I haven't seen, but I've heard such sour things about, and I definitely would be curious uh, to see finally, uh, from director Peter Weir starring Russell Crowe, Master and Commander. Ooh, okay, great. And uh, unfortunately, I'm so sorry, Manish, that my other pick over at number 2 was Life of Pi. <laughs> so unfortunately... <laughs> We couldn't have more angling, but it, it was an option there. I do also really quite like that movie quite a bit. Oh, good. Yeah, excellent. I would love to hear that, but I think Master Commander is a great movie as well. Well, now for Adam's two bad ones. Please pick a number between one and ten. Um, three. Okay. Over at number two, he has uh, the 2005 film Sahara, <laughs> which I've also never seen. So I don't know. We'll, we'll, it'll be curious if nothing else. Uh, though on the other side of things, over at number nine, he had Cutthroat Island, the infamous Gina Davis, Renny Harlan bomb. I've never seen that either. Sahara, I don't know. It's a, it's an, it's like a good like, you know, TNT movie. It kind of has that energy. You know, so I'm sure <laughs> you'll find it. Enjo- I think you might enjoy it on that level. You know. Yes. So Sahara and Master and Commander will be covering next week. But until then, everybody, uh, please, you know, respect your wonderful British character actors and really have empathy for them. They, They really need it whenever they can get it, especially if they're in tulip fever. They need all the empathy they can get.